Welcome to episode 24 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. How's it going, Justin? Hey, yeah, going well. Uh, a little bit hungover this morning again, but uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, I'll try to put on a good a good front. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, so let's see what's what's the latest. Let's let's start with the tweet miner update. The tweet miner update. Um, well, one thing I wanted to talk about with tweet miners just some interesting timeline aspects. Um, the first line of code um, for tweet miner was on August the 10th. Okay. And then the first sign-up um, was on September 13th, so it took 34 days to go live. I thought that was wow. interesting. That's really that's really a tight development schedule. I mean, that's great. <laughs> that's like, it's almost as good as um, as the one is local bacon. Um, but then after that, the first sale was just four days after, so it took 38 days to get the first sale. Right. Now, that's, that's better than local bacon. We spent more time than that. But... Uh... That's and, impressive. And then took, um, basically from August the 10th, it took 67 days to get the first thousand dollars. There were 67 days. And you had last week when we talked, I think you had what, 44 signups? Uh, 44 signups. Yeah, it's kind of slowing down now. So there was, I think there was like 44. It's it's 47 now. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's the it's a holiday week. You're gonna have. It's gonna be really flat probably during uh, the holidays. I I think I'd read a number of blog post where uh, you know companies like Wufu or whatever would talk about how December was really a slow month so you just have yeah. to anticipate that and I think you know you know the one I the, the, the guy who'd written a lot about signups and growing revenue and A-B testing he did a bingo creator yeah does that ring a bell yeah yeah so he's written a number of stuff about um you know about building a web service on on, on the uh, on Hacker News. He's posted a lot of stuff on Hacker News, and I think, if I recall, it was December. We're just sort of dead. <laughs> December is dead, and November is kind of slow too. So you, you know, factor that in. Yeah, I I'm, I think that that's probably very valid. Um. So one thing one thing um that I wanted to just quickly brainstorm with you is a, a technical issue that I've got, and I'm not sure how to deal with it. I would like for Tweetminer to be able to track everyone's followers so that so that it makes it easier to offer functionality like, for example, being able to send a direct message to everyone's followers or also um, so that I can add something like auto-friend adding where people can type in a couple of keywords such as PHP or uh, JavaScript and, it'll, and like maybe once every three hours it will search Twitter for people who've mentioned that and then sort of add them as a friend and then if they follow them then they'll you know, they, they become their friend. But right. to, to do that, you sort of need to keep track of everyone's followers. And that's kind of a, a bit of a problem, I've realized, because, I mean, at the moment, there's, you know, uh, let me see how many Twitter accounts there is on the system. There is basically 2,000 Twitter accounts on the system. So, I mean, how would you go about that? It's, essentially, it's like a reconciliation script that um, goes and pulls down everyone's followers and does it but how would you do that what would be your technical sort of thoughts about doing something like that managing two thousand or more accounts some people may have a hundred thousand followers some people may have you know five thousand followers so it's huge amounts of data to keep track of right um well <laughs> what, what api functionality does twitter have to support that to support well, what what they do is they let you. It's interesting. They let you basically find out someone's followers 
but they'll only sort of feed them through to you a hundred at a time. So you've got a page. So if you want to get a hundred thousand followers and, and sort of reconciliate that, you need to page through their hundred thousand followers a hundred of them. Go. Okay. Now, can you do a search? Okay, so let's say someone has a hundred thousand followers, and and if you want to update your script, let's say you have some kind of a cron script that, you know, every night it goes through and it, it tries to update, find people's latest friends list. Yeah. And if you have a hundred thousand followers, you don't want to have to download a hundred thousand every single time. You want you want to sort of do a diff. Yeah. Is there a way of checking um, friends that were most recently added versus? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess there is if you keep track of it on the system. Um, I, I think that the, what they do is they, um, when when a new friend gets added to your follower list, it gets added onto the top of the stack. So I think you can sort of keep track of it that way potentially. Yeah. Can you do a can you do a search that searches most most recently added so that you're not searching from the first friend? I mean, when you when you know. do a search, yeah. So my question is is what 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 sort of search parameters are available? I don't know. In fact, you know what? I tell you what's weird. I've told you the solution rather than the problem, because <laughs> I've said okay. I've said that the solution is is to reconciliate and pull down all of the followers. But maybe that's yeah. maybe that's the wrong way to approach it. I mean, essentially, I just want a script that uh, you know, if they send, I guess it just sort of needs to keep track of. Oh, I don't it's know. Good. And, I don't and, know. And, and, and let's Twitter provide you with a mechanism to send a direct message to. Uh, all of their followers to all of your followers yeah. followers then you're going to have to keep track of them yourself which you're going to have to have some kind of a cron script that periodically reconciles the followers that you know about and the followers they have and hopefully yeah. they have some kind of a of a, a way of searching that you can search from the most free, recently added as opposed to from the first and on down so you have this page through all hundred thousand okay so you- let's say they didn't what would be your strategy just kind of what I said. Oh, that they did provide that. No, no, let's say they didn't provide that. How would you, how how would you deal with that reconciliation? Would you basically cycle through all two thousand users maybe once every few days and sort of so so that you didn't have the most up to date follower list, but you had a kind of up to date follower list? Is that would that be a kind of approach? Mm, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean that that's sort of the brute force of approach that's the only thing i can think of off the top of my head unless there's some kind of very clever way of ascertaining people's followers by looking at other people because because the other thing is is twitter limits you the number of um api calls so if you start doing huge amounts of you know um calls in people's accounts name then it'll it'll sort of break twitter for them (laughs) on tweet (laughs) miner right okay so one one thing I have to, as a disclaimer, obviously I don't know anything about the Twitter API, and I almost right. never use Twitter, so I'm not a, a, an expert on it. But l- let me think about this. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to you you want functionality so that you can sort of do a broadcast to, to your direct message to your followers. I mean, why do you want to do that? Why not? Why, why is that important? Well, I think one reason it's important is because you've you know as as um, I'd say an internet marketer or just you know even someone like us. I mean. Essentially, it's like an opt-in list. People are, people are sort of following you. They're interested in what you have to say. And maybe you want to um, communicate with, with them in a way that feels more private. But yet, you want to sort of talk to all of your user base. Hmm. Well, okay. So assuming there's no clever workaround, the only, the only way you can do it is by reconciling on some kind of, at some kind of frequency and, and tracking all of their uh, followers. Yeah. 
let's think, let's think maybe there's another way of skinning this cat which is that ultimately they want to do okay they want to communicate with some of their with their followers and you said a more intimate or it's person. not just for communication though i mean it's also useful let's say for example you know you you want to create this auto follow feature like okay. the thing about that is you also want to check whether they're already following someone or not so you know don't try and add them as a friend if they're already a friend kind of thing right so it's I just useful know. it's just useful to know it's just useful to know all of their followers i mean there's there's many uses for it really yeah, I, I don't know if there's really a way a way around around that. Uh, unless you did something where you said, "Okay, I'm going to search through their most recent t uh, tweets and all the all the people they've they've tweeted or have tweeted them recently, yeah. and just send messages to those people." You know that that might be another uh, approach to allow a, a different type of communication. I, I just don't know. I mean, um, okay, another another good reason to have everyone's followers is. Um, you know, internal group system, so that internally TweetMiner can keep track of groups rather than, rather than having to do something like rely on um, the list system. You know, right? So th there's a whole bunch of good reasons for it. Um, well, but what it, about using lists? I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting way of well solving I think, the problem? I think lists is an interesting way of um, helping people sort of filter out the, the you know. Just focusing on the followers they want to, but TweetMiner already uses the list, so that's not really. That doesn't really add anything. Yeah, I don't know. I, I you might be stuck with just having to run periodic requests up, you know, to get to reconcile. Okay. Which is going to be a pain. I just I just thought I'd ask you because it sounds kind of similar to some of the stuff that you've been working on with the um your trading systems, where you okay. where you have to pull down lots of data and you know I just wondered if there was any load balancing strategies or just general patterns that, that were good to do something like that yeah i don't know in this if this if this instance is if it's uh, similar in this instance i can't think of any any anything helpful to say oh, okay. about it speaking all right well, let's topic, move on then <laughs> speaking so yeah speaking on that topic is kind of interesting so we were we were working on this this messaging um and i think i told you that when we this trading system uh, has a, a data feed that it reads from, and it and this data feed supplies every single trade and quote update from every single domestically traded uh, security, future, option, and stock. Yeah. And that comes through at, at times can come through as high as 500,000 messages per second. Now, I ha we have yet to be able to to figure out a way to provide that kind of uh, messaging internally in the network. So there's a data feed that provides this and then trying to get those messages to other machines. And we used um, one of the methods, I, I wrote a direct socket approach. Right. I wrote a C++ uh, asynchronous sort of uh, a socket library and then I wrote a, 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 um, a .NET version as well so they could communicate so we could have .NET applications because I, I don't want to have to write all the applications in C++. Yeah. And you don't want to have to write a C++ library and then um, cross over to .NET every single um, message because that'll just be too slow, but we weren't able to get anything close to that. Even even and then I because I used another approach which is ZeroMQ is a open source library and yeah. ZeroMQ is sort of this sort of this supposed to be the fastest messaging you know platform out there and uh, yeah we were we would get like we would have machine number one would be getting in this data feed machine number two would be subscribing to it and trying to get in uh, quotes for a variety of different stocks. And 
it would start to get it would start to show latency of like a second or two after like eight thousand messages per second. Like it would get behind. Yeah, it just couldn't process them fast enough, which seemed really strange to me. I, I'm not exactly sure because the CPU wasn't that high, CPU utilization was that high, and it's a gigabit net network. And so if you're talking like 50, 50 byte messages, and even if you're doing ten thousand messages a second, that's uh, you know not that. What's that? Um, so let's say let's say ten thousand messages times five is uh, uh, fifty thousand. So so how did you how did you crack that's, the problem? That's half, a, that's half a megasecond of, of of throughput, which is nothing, right? Right. So why why are the why is this so reading off the socket getting so far behind? So even using zero MQ and my my uh, sort of uh, raw uh, socket approach that I built, my homegrown version, they both sort of got behind around 8,000 8, messages per right. second. And um, it's kind of strange. I'm trying to figure out what, that's something we're struggling with right now. Oh, okay, out. okay. So it's not, so you haven't, you haven't sort of solved the problem. I haven't solved it, yeah. It's just, it's, 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 you know, I haven't, I haven't spent a ton of time. We spent a couple hours experimenting with it. So now I got to go down and, 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 and really sort of, because so you do these tests sometimes. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to have like this test app that's going to blast through a bunch of messages, a bunch of messages this other client app and you, you see this huge throughput and then but then when you move it to separate machines and you kind of run it with real data it doesn't um it doesn't really behave the same way that's why it's always important to t test your stuff with real data not just sort of what you think is sort of like a test data i've got a good title for this for this show this, could, this should be called the justin and jason can't make stuff work show yeah just <laughs> <laughs> this episode shit don't work <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so I don't know. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do some. Um, I'm gonna have to break it down to its to its raw component and see, and then of course just twist a bunch of knobs and see what I can discover by buffer buffer lengths. And I I don't know. I mean I, I'm not sure what what knobs I can turn because uh, it's already pretty tight. But then I guess I'll maybe I'll try Stack Overflow. So maybe somebody that's a good some, idea. Uh, try Stack Overflow. Socket experts who can say, hey, you know, if you wanna tweak your your throughput on your on your windows network sockets you need to just change this registry setting and do this you know there's always there's always some inside deep dark knowledge that somebody has about how to so what's the what's the status on your uh, secret startup the secret startup so last week uh or this past week i've I had to spend a lot of time working on um well i moved i moved it over from a shared hosting platform to a virtual private server. Oh, EPS. why did you do that? Oh, that's because, well, because you the database manipulation stuff. One thing I need to be able to create a, a database for every client, which I, you're not able to do um, if you have like a cPanel shared hosted page. Yeah. You don't have that kind of flexibility. And the second thing is I wanted to create wildcard domains. So let's say that either it's an account, let's say that, you, you know, Justin. So Justin is a subdomain, you know, like posterous. Yeah. Justin.jasonsecretproject.com. Right. So in order to do that, you don't want those aren't Justin isn't actually a a subdomain that's been added to the um, as an A record or, or whatever. You want a wildcard, which is just uses the the asterisks, and then you set up some virtual host stuff and and ultimately what you end up having to do. Oh, you don't need virtual host stuff. You can um, you do an alias. You do a server alias. Well, what what I was going to say is you sort of you hook into it in the script itself. So the script examines the incoming host name and then determines the user account. Based on that. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so yeah, the the couple things you had. You have to add a wildcard alias. Yep. You, then the second step is to create a um, 
I think so. I think it's really you just try to wildcard alias. Well, Apache basically and, and, just needs to wildcard everything for that domain to one document right. root. That's right. And then what you then the the, the, the uh, I guess the real trick is to use a mod rewrite rule, um, because w what I don't want is it to go to, so Justin dot secret dot com gets redirected to secretproject.com forward slash users forward slash Justin, and that's what they see. I want it to remain. So if you do a, if you do a script and you and you uh, examine the URL and then do a a, a redirect. As far as I understand, it'll end up showing. It would it would show what you redirected to. It wouldn't show the original. Justin. But why would you file. need? Why would you need it? Like, do people upload files to the system? They they could eventually, yeah. But for the, for the for the in the first part, they're not going to be uploading files. So my thought is, why would you even need a redirect? Because at the end of the day, once this your script um, sees the host name is Justin Vincent dot, you can just extract the Justin Vincent, then map that in the database. To uh, you know, um, the the tenant Justin Vincent. Yeah, no, okay. So the, here's the thing. So though. you don't need um, to redirect. Here's the thing, though. Is 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 there's a bunch of code that's 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 generated that's specific to everyone, say to individual accounts. It's not the same code base. So. So we're I'm, yeah, I'm, but that's I'm, that's that's still an internal thing. I mean, that that code is just p generated PHP script. I'm, I'm assuming, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Well, anyway, the way I solved, I ended up solving it. And the way I ended up solving it was using mod rewrite. Problem is, I had written, I read through like a half dozen tutorials on on how to how to do it, and I had to go through. I'm not very good at regular expressions. I I, I learned just enough to do something, you know, and then I end up forgetting it <laughs> and coming back six months later, and then I have to write a regex expression, and I'm just like, oh, how how does this work again? And the problem was that the couple of the sample scripts that I found on the web just didn't work, or they came kind of half worked. And so, and then I was all over Stack Overflow because there were there's probably at least two or three, two dozen people had asked this variations on the same question, and a lot of the answers just didn't work, and so I ended up having to sort of learn how to do it, and then then by sort of extracting some insights from a handful of these scripts, and I finally cobbled together something that ended up working perfectly. So it'll redirect. So you have to do it. So I end up doing a mod rewrite. So in PCS, internally. PCS Okay, so internally, it's it's redirecting it to different PHP scripts, right? Right. So um, it it so so Justin um, Justin Vincent Project com would re, be redirected to secretproject.com forward slash users forward slash Justin Vincent, and not redirected but rewritten, re rewritten or, internally or, so that the user doesn't see that, but that's what happens in the web server. That's right, and the HT access. And the HT access file. So that was a, you know, I'd always wanted to know how to do that. I always thought that was really cool. And I didn't really know much about it. Uh, and then when you see things like uh, sites like Posterous is one example or, or Ning or whatever, when you would. Well, you don't create... really know whether those guys are doing the, uh, because, because one thing is if you've got a central request handler, PHP script, you, mm -hmm. uh, bye G. Um, you can you can do that in PHP. You don't you don't need the mod re rewrite. And and the way that you do it is you just uh, you have a look at the host name that that the, the current session has. Sure. And then basically you just ex explode that and look at the first the first parameter. So in this case it'd be Justin Vincent, and then you just map it to uh, map it to a tenant internally. So you don't necessarily need to have different user directories. Right. Right. That's interesting. I have to experiment with that. I, well, I don't know. I probably won't. That's an interesting approach. The one I approach I found works. So I, yeah. I already spent like 
way, way more time than I wanted to getting all this stuff configured because um, I pretty much spent a lot of the last, I haven't written code in like four or five days because I've been screwing around uh, on tech support for the hosting company, uh, trying to get the, trying to relearn regular expressions and mod rewrite. And then of course I had to write a bunch of stuff for um, creating the database dynamically. And what happens is if you have a database for every single client, then you need to have some way of administering that. So if you have like 5,000 databases, 20,000 yeah. databases, you have, it, it, those are like records in a, in a table. You can't just go to PHP MyAdmin or, or some kind of like, you know, uh, desktop SQL admin. Like I use like SQL Yog. I mean, it's just not going to shoot 20,000. <laughs> uh, it's not going to shoot 20,000 databases. It's going to take three hours to load up. So yeah. I had to write, I had to write some, some sort of uh, administrative scripts to be able to interface with the database in that way. One thing, one thing is, is that the way that you've done it that way, in theory, makes it easier to scale because you can just move those database. You know, you can move those databases to another server, and then in in each of those clients' script, you can just sort of connect to their own database server. So if you did get twenty thousand clients, which you probably would need to scale because you had twenty thousand different schemas, then you just sort of, you know, it's it's a, it's a form of sharding. It's not exactly sharding, but um, at least you can lighten your load that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think it it makes total sense, and I just think it's a little dangerous um, to be putting everybody's schemas in one database or doing anything to work around because everybody's going to have different schemas, and mm. it really needs to be um, they need to be separate. I think that's the only safe way to do it. And I want to set up separate specific uh, database users for each for each database, and just just keep it real. Uh, be really think- safe about it. By the way, um, I think that gives that gives a little clue about what your product is. A little bit, but little uh, bit. not too much. Too, yeah, um, tantalizing clue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to be mysterious. I just, I just would rather have it, uh, re- re- you know, have something released before I talk about. It. I'd read, read an, I think we might have talked about this, but I read an article um, a while back. I think we might talk this maybe a couple months ago. Where if you talk about what you're doing. And you say, well, I'm going to do this. And it sort of it removes some of the pressure to actually get it done. You, like you, there's some aspect of it that makes you feel like I've already accomplished it just because I talked about doing it. Right. Um, so you, you say you don't tell people what you're doing. As, whereas sometimes you think, well, like let's say you, you want to, you're some goal you want. Like I'm going to go run a marathon or I'm going to lose 20 pounds or I'm going to do something. I'm going to do a startup or something. If you go tell people, you think, well, I'll have to hold myself accountable. So I'm going to tell everyone that I'm going to lose 20 pounds, right? So everybody's going, like, so how's that going, right? Yeah. The problem is, I guess, psychologically, it doesn't work that way. It, it works sort of against you in that you, you feel like you've accomplished it to, at, at some level just by telling people. So if you really want to accomplish it, if you want to stack the, the deck psychologically in your favor, it's like don't go around telling people what you're doing. That is interesting. I thought it was kind of interesting too. It's totally counterintuitive, and it's not really what I would have guessed. I would have, I would have thought the account, the accountability um, approach would have worked better. Now, that's obviously not completely the reason why I don't want to talk about it. I, I, I just like anybody. It's like I know I have something out there, and want to have your ideas sort of solidified. Um, yeah. Now it's funny because I got, there was a comment on the blog. I can't remember the guy's name. Do you do you have the web, web thing? Up? I do. Yeah. Which one? Which one are you looking for? My, he was Michael the guy who said you need to. Re- he, he kept saying, "Come on, Jason, release it," even if you're embarrassed about it. I, I, I oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was actually a very nice comment. 
my response was, yeah, believe me, I will be embarrassed. <laughs> the first version um, of your software is just nothing like how you really envision it, I, I think, if unless you hold on to it for years. Just looking for, uh, we've got comments from um, B. Curdy, Michael Rakita. And, Might have been Michael Rakita. Yeah, I think so. Actually, yeah, just two- just to say to anyone listening, like we really do appreciate if you if you um, comment on the textinglive.com blog, because it's great to get the feedback. And you know what? Something else we were thinking just to you know, if you wouldn't mind, it'd be really kind of you to maybe tell uh, one or two of your friends about the show, just so that we can help to um, get more people listen to it. Yeah. Now, who who are the guys? Is Michael Rakita, and he he has a a a, a product, Traysoft. Um. Doing a, he has his own he has his own startup I think I'm not sure and B Curdy B Curdy is who what who what's his guy's does he have his real name okay I'm just reading uh, I don't know his real name um, I'll tell you what B Curdy says hi guys regarding transparency you might want to read or listen to predictably irrational by Dan Ariely um, really great book on behavioral economics in one of the chapters the author suggests that the spectacular raise in CEO wages these past years is linked to the legal obligation large companies have to disclose the salary of their top earners. Every CEO can now complain about how much more the other guy is doing for similar performances, which leads to a nice and irrational inflationary spiral. Um, and he, he kind of agrees with you saying, I love the idea of transparency, but humans being human, I'm afraid this might sometimes cause more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's... Yeah, it, 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 we got Toby here is uh, giving me a hard time. Yeah, so so Toby says, so Toby says, um, I think since Justin has done pretty much everything Jason has suggested, that Jason should listen to Justin and release something in four weeks. <laughs> Why don't you do that, Jason? I will. I'm, le- I'm going to release it. Well, we got about four weeks left for the end of the year. And if you, count, if you count the days off for Christmas and Christmas Eve and all that kind of stuff, um, it will essentially be four weeks. So what do you think of this idea? You could you could even give out a URL for the podcast listeners to sign up and give early feedback after your private beta, but before any serious public beta. You know, I think that's great. And I was actually thinking that because obviously the people who are listening to this show come, are, are, are understand what we're trying to do in, in the sense of building code, building a, 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 a real web service and a revenue. They, they understand the process and the, and the challenges. And they're probably going to be technically savvy and probably some very good insight so i think it'd be a great idea it'd be nice if we could get get some people from the show so i'll absolutely do that and it's, i'd actually already thought about that yeah. and it, it, you it is michael rakita who's basically saying jason we can't wait to see what you're working on come on release it already <laughs> <laughs> I, I know i i'm, I'm dying to uh, i i'm dying to get get it there um so i'm gonna really push hard over this over this next month and uh, try and get this thing brought to uh, brought to a level where we can at least have people experimenting with it and playing with it. Um, yeah, uh, this last week was just frustrating setting up the virtual private server. So at least I'm over that hump. And I, you know, it was one of those things like the the setting up the subdomain. I probably could have punted on that, right? I mean, I probably didn't necessarily have to set up a have it, have that work initially. And that's sometimes a problem with me is once I get on a a certain te- there's a technical challenge. I, I feel like I can't back away, away until I finish it. Yeah. Like I should have punted on that um, after like messing around with it for a day and going back and forth to tech support and trying a million regex expressions and nothing working. I should have just said, you know what? I'll come to this in three months. But 
I was just one of those things where I just I was obsessing over. It. We were we were visiting the in-laws, and um, I'm sitting on the on the laptop and sort of in the den, <laughs> in this chair, just trying you know one thing after another. And uh, eventually, at like midnight, I think the other night, I just I hit it. And I was like, oh, thank God. But you again, know what I don't like about that solution. Out. What I don't like about it because the the thing that I don't like about that solution is is it it's adding a second point of failure beyond your code base. So if if you were doing that in your code base, it's easier to add, dare I say, exceptions, which to be honest are, you know, when in, in real websites, when they get up and running, you need these, you need weird kind of exceptions all the time. For example, you want to do something different with a specific user's account or something um, regarding routing. Because essentially it's routing, really. They, that's what that's what they call in the common frameworks such as um, Symphony Code Igniter, they they call this routing. And um, if it was if it was inside the code, it would be easier for you to do, you know, to just really have ownership of it. That's that's my only thought. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't mind if 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 I can get it to work the same way using PHP script, I'd be more than fine with that. Um, I just wasn't sure I could get it to work the same way without it showing the redirected URL. No, no, um, it it doesn't do any redirecting whatsoever. It's just it just you basically just um, internally set the paths that are that are going to be used. Um, hey, listen, something else. Um, two, two, no, one episode ago, um, we also got a a comment in on the blog um, from Aaron Srini, um, and I quite like this idea of people posting comments to the blogs and questions to the blogs and us, us answering it on the show. And he says, um, in startups, if you think you want to hire other steps you do <laughs> well i i think we <laughs> talked about this a little less uh, or at least one thing we said in the last episode is neither of us have spent a lot of time i, I don't know I mean, maybe you have I, i've never i haven't really hired people and one or two people in a couple different ventures but that was it so i'm, I'm not a real expert in, in hiring people and making mistakes and finding out what works and what doesn't work maybe are you are you more familiar with that I mean, you worked in corporations so i guess you've been part of a hiring process right yeah, I think that um, there isn't really any easy answer because, I mean, I've I've interviewed people and thought they were fantastic and then after working with them for a bit, you know, it wasn't such a good fit. And then the other way around too. So I don't... I think that, I think the... Um... I think the only thing I would say about this, well, okay, a couple of things. I, I, I'm actually currently reading Coders at Work, which is a great book, by the way. I think it's, yep. it's really interesting. I think people enjoy it. And essentially what it is, this guy um, goes around and interviews all these top-notch developers, um, like the guy I created JavaScript, um, or Joe Armstrong, who created Erlang, and those kinds of people. And yeah, That's one question he asks them. <laughs> yeah. He has like a handful of questions that he asks them all, and one of them is, um, you know, how, how do you hire or did, or how, how, uh, really great programmers, or how, how, do you, how can you tell if someone's great? And, you know, and none of them are really big on the whole puzzle thing that Google does and Microsoft, I think, used to do, which is like ask people these puzzlers. Right. And, you know, ask, see if they can figure them out. Because just because someone's a good puzzle solver doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be a very productive coder. And, and just because they're, and, and a lot of great coders aren't necessarily on the spot great puzzle solver, solvers. Um, yeah, because regardless, some, sometimes you can just sit back and think about it for a day and come up with a great solution. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and programming is not, you know, fast, quick. You know, think fast. You know, what's the answer to this? Like, uh, you know, it's it's more yeah. of a contemplative, 
evolutionary thing. You 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 knock out some code, you think about stuff, you walk away, you come back, yeah. and it's the ability to do that. And I think, you know, in fact, my my high school uh, a teacher who was my advisor and, and mentor, and he was a physicist actually, and he um, he used to say to me that the the, 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 like the math team stuff, the stuff that people do in high school, which is, um, you know, solving problems quickly. Not only are our math classes geared towards that, like here's a problem, you should be able to solve it in 30 seconds or two minutes or five minutes or something. And um, that's not how real math is done or real physics is done. It's the people who can stay on a problem for for months or years. Yeah, yeah. Keep thinking about it and coming back to it and working on it and research and trying different things and building on things and collecting tools that they can use to attack the problem from different angles and they're completely different tool sets so that so what selects for people who might be go into physics or math or things like that um isn't necessarily a great determinant of who's going to do well doing actual research and i think programming is very much like that well one of the things that it's he says long- i mean if you th- if you look at the question it says in startups uh if you think you want to hire what are the steps you do and what that makes me think is well <laughs> Most people don't have any money. <laughs> so, you know, when, when if you're going to hire someone, it's not so much hiring. It's more about trying to find someone who believes in your vision and who's going to join your team and work for free, really, in a startup situation. Well, certainly in, in the kind of seed-level startups that we that we talk about regularly. Well, you know, uh, like Guyon, I'm working with him. He's he's fully employed. I mean, this is something that he, he does an hour, hour and a half a day, four or you, five days a week. You don't pay him, though, right? He's, he's, I don't pay him. No, he's don't invested in the... Yeah, he's invested in the project. So how did you find Guyon? I mean, right. how did that happen? Well, well, Guyon and I um, started working on he, – he worked on Prezo with me. I found him as a consultant because I was working on Prezo alone, and I, and I thought it would be really nice if I have somebody to bang some ideas uh, right. off of because it's really, really tricky advanced JavaScript stuff. And, um, and uh, he had written a couple articles um, on the web about – I think it was based on converting – the C++ standard template library into JavaScript. And I was very impressed with the articles and his insight and the fact that how well he understood the standard template library as well as how to actually make that work in JavaScript the right way. And I thought, this is the kind of guy I like to work with. So I, I emailed him about consulting, and he agreed. And so we started consulting and, and work. And he started consulting, but really what ended up happening is we would just pair program at a distance. And so we would code together. Um, it wasn't like I would email him and say, hey, can you solve this problem? Um, he would call me, uh, I would share my desktop, and we would just talk over Google Talk or Skype and write code and, and work on the stuff for an hour, hour and a half a day. And that proved to be a great – it was very productive for me. It was a lot of fun. But also I got to understand how he, how his brain worked and how he solved problems. Paired programming and, is such a great thing because people would think – you know, you'd think that you'd move along slower, but you move along so much faster overall because it just gets rid of roadblocks. Because when you when you come up to a roadblock, uh, you know, a problem that for you yourself is un, is sort of unsolvable and you'd go away and you'd think about it for three hours, you know, how am I going to solve that? How am I going to solve that? When two people are there actually coding it at the same time, you go through that three-hour process in about 10 minutes. You brainstorm it and you get past that roadblock. So ultimately, you just produce so much more code. Yeah. Okay, you know, a couple of things I'd say about it, which is interesting. One, I would say that there's definitely times where I just want to code alone. I just want to turn on the music and drink some coffee and just just kind of go into his solitary monk-like state. Right. <laughs> and I'm very, I can be very productive in that mode. And especially when I just want to experiment with some stuff, I just really want to try some stuff. Um, now, 
so I, I, I think it's, 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 you know, maybe you don't want to pair program all the time, but it's great some of the time. And with Guyon, uh, we each have our strengths and weaknesses, I think. And what you've said, which is, uh, which is really important, is that a lot of times you come to a, a roadblock or you come to a fork in the road rather than a roadblock necessarily. There's like three or four different ways you can do it. You're not really sure which way you want to do it. And what ends up happening is when you're not sure what to do is you just can't move forward because you can't decide. You're like, I don't know. And you, you <laughs> kind of start inching your way down one way and you're like, ah, no, that's not what I want to do. And you go back and you just – and then so you keep – because you can't decide, you keep not doing anything and then you start to get distracted and do other stuff because you can't decide, right? But when you're on the phone with somebody, you're like – you got to make a decision. You kind of argue, you, you kind of switch sides. Like, I don't know, maybe we should do this. And then you start, well, maybe we should do that. And you kind of argue back and forth. And then it becomes, and it kind of comes out in the wash by just talking about it. You kind of, you just say, well, let's just go with, let's just go with, uh, you know, this, this, you know, option C. Screw it. Let's just try it. And then you do it and you go because this other person you're working with isn't just going to sit there on the phone while you're, you know, struggling for a half an hour. He's going to make a decision in five minutes. I find a lot right. of the, a lot of the times those big forks relate to upfront thinking versus hacks. <laughs> so basically, am I going to do this the right way or am I going to hack it? You know, and it's sort of a decision. Yeah, that, well, I, I think it can be. <laughs> yeah, but I think it can also be. It's just like there's different different approaches, and it's just sometimes it's stylistic, you know, or, or it's just it's subjective. It's you could go either either way it could work, and sometimes you just don't have enough information to know which way is going to work or, or or whatever. But you end up Oops, losing you there. Makes, makes it and, and get more from. Okay, you you end up just having to pick. Yeah. Is a, a pick a pick a direction and go and you can always and that's what we say when when Guy and I will be working on something and we can't decide and then we just pick a direction. It's like all right, look, let's just go with option C. If it sucks, we'll go back. No big deal. Just you know, let's just try it because we can't just sitting here talking about it and waffling for a half an hour, an hour is no good. And it's just very, it's boring. It's frustrating. You want to write some code. You want to make some progress. So that's one thing a pair program is great for. It's of course what you said also is like when you can't solve something, because sometimes what will happen is one or one of the two of you is, a, is stronger at one thing or knows something a little better or sees something the other one doesn't. So you don't get stuck on things as long. Yeah. And uh, oh, another thing is like when, when you're working on something and you get frustrated with, with, uh, with, with something, the other person isn't frustrated. You can just let them, and you can just kind of sit back and take a more of a passive role, and just, and just uh, let them beat on it a little bit. But, but back to his, uh, 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 back to the original question, which is, how do you hire someone to start up? And what I would get at is, I would say this: um, just like the minimal viable product, the whole thing that we've learned about software development and releasing project, which is, which is, don't totally commit to something until you understand it a little better. And the best way to do that is a consulting project. Right. Get someone and say, hey, listen, um, before we get into anything big, you know, why don't you do this little project for us? And don't just like outsource it to them. Just say, well, let's work a little bit on it together and you can work on it some of your own and get a sense of how do you like working with this person? So basically do you're saying hire problems? them, you know, hire them as a consultant, um, prepare program with them and see what you think of them. But then you've also got to make this sale. I mean, they weren't necessarily looking for a partnership role, were they? You know? So you've got to make well, the sale and say, look, hey, by the way, this great thing that we've been working on, now I, you know, I want you to work on it for free. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like dating in a sense, right? I mean, there's one sense you're trying to decide whether you want them, and they have to decide whether they want you. I mean, is this person you – know, they, they, if you don't sell the project and sell yourself, so they, they believe in you and they believe in this project, they're not going to want to get involved. And, you know, but you don't want to spend all your time selling yourself to, realize, to, to then not have um, vetted them 
the, correctly. And so what I'm saying is that, you know, and it's not me you just have to hire them. It's like you could say, let's say this, let's say this person is somebody who's kind of a, you kind of know them as a friend of a friend. And you said, Hey, why don't, why don't we um, just spend a few hours and we'll work on this little project, a uh, little piece of it. And that way you can get a sense of how we work and the, and the problem we're trying to solve. And I can get a sense of how you work, right? Do something like that. And then you can, and uh, you can kind of do it in steps. You don't have to be like, Oh, we have a few conversations and now you're a co-founder or now you're my first hire. It's just, just like people date, they date and they get, you know, they become more serious and they get engaged. It's like, it's a very step. You, you, it's, it's risk mitigation because we bring on the wrong person in a startup and that can just kill the whole thing. One bad, one bad person can bring the whole thing down. You don't want a false positive. It's better to be kind of more careful about it. I also recommend startuply.com. Startuply.com is just a great, a great place to, uh, advertise your job for free and you know the only people who look at it that are people who are interested in working in startups so what yeah could be better than that yeah you're right too because you want you want people who are interested in startups not just people who are interested in writing code or people who are interested in um in, in a job you want people who that's who they are very excited about that prospect because it's it's a lot of a harder road it's a more exciting road some people can't take the the sort of the uncertainty of it and some people love it and they hate the 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 staleness of working for a corporation. So you want people who are good sort of personality fit, but um, you really, if you get those people, you really want to make sure that they're good at what you want them to do and, uh, or what you need them to do and that you guys get along. You know, that there's somebody that, because you can find some people who are really good or you can find somebody's a great problem solver and you sit around and they talk a great game and they, you know, they, they have a PhD from MIT and they've spent 15 years coding all sorts of hard problems and it turns out that they're not productive or you, this person is just completely annoying or unproductive or distracted or not committed or anything could kill it, you know? And so it's, it's, there's a million reasons why something can't work that were in, in a few brief conversations and uh, on, a, on a piece of paper they look outstanding. So the best way to do that, and the only thing I'll say, one last thing I'll say about it is it's kind of like, you need to very look specifically at what they want to do. It's, it's sort of like um, if you want to see how good of a coder, you want someone who's a great coder, code with them. You know, don't talk with them. Are they a good talker? Are they a good problem solver? Those are, that's, what you're, that's really what you're checking in, the, in these asking people puzzles and having interview questions. I mean, that might be a first rough pass, but you need to sit down and code with them. And it's not just coding for like two hours or three hours in a, like a pair of programming session because that's just saying, well, under the right circumstances, can they pair code? It's like maybe have them work on a small side project and say, can they deliver something after a few weeks? Are they just going to blow it off and lose uh, focus? I've learned a pretty interesting thing. Uh, sorry, I've learned a pretty interesting thing with TweetMiner recently. Um, something that I've believed for many years is that no one can be as passionate about your project as you. And, you know, when you, when you start your startup and you start your idea and you're sort of um, evangelizing it to people, even if you get other people involved, you will always be the most passionate about it. But with TweetMiner... One affiliate's come on board, Tommy, and he is at least, if not more, passionate about it than I am, which I think is yeah. incredible. And I, I didn't expect that. And I guess that is that, that must be true of other businesses as well. Yeah, so, I mean, people can get really excited about stuff. Yeah, absolutely. If they're, especially if they're if they're having fun with it and they see the value and maybe they're and they're benefiting from it. Or this guy, no, this is a um. Said this is an affiliate. affiliate. So what does that mean exactly? What does he well, do? Well, it, it means that 
you know, he he loves it and he tells people about it. And when they click the link, he gets a, he gets a share of the revenue. But I, he do, he doesn't really seem to be that stressed about the revenue. He just strangely really really loves the product. And I, and I think that I don't know what what it means strategically for us as you know software developers. But I guess it's just it's just interesting to know that that's out there, that that's possible. You know, that if you really keep on trying and and put yourself out there and get your product out there, you may just pick up a few people. Certain, you know, even if you're looking for a partner, other people who are just as sort of enthusiastic about your project as you. And I, right. I, I just didn't know that was possible until recently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think if you can, you just have to look. I, I think one of the things about finding founders and co-founders or partners or, or maybe even early employees in startups is that you really have to just be willing to make understand it's going to be a, pro, a long process, that you don't want to grab the first person or spend, oh, I'm going to hire someone in two weeks. Like, that's probably a mistake. Just because of the best person you found in two weeks, it still may not be a very good fit. And uh, you want to look for those people who have that excitement and have the interest and have the ability and all that kind of stuff. And one last thing I want to say, I, I think I probably covered this, but I, I, I want to sort of reiterate is that, you know, you can, by doing sort of pair coding sessions, not only do you get to understand whether they can actually code, because you, like, you give them their turn, right? You code, code this, right? And especially if you start from something at scratch, like you don't want to just give them a piece of your code because it's just because somebody is good, just because they may have they struggle working inside your code base doesn't mean that they're, they're not a good coder. So we start with something that's kind of a blank slate, and you say, right, well, let's, let's, let's work on this thing. Here's something I need done. Um, here's kind of how I'm thinking about it, and work on it together. But and, and, and some people say, well, I don't know, the pair coding, I got to get this guy, and we got to sit in the office together. It's like you don't have to do that. Share your desktop. Use like Ultra VNC or Gold, you know, that's like a free, freeware product you can use. Share your desktop, Google Talk. I mean, the person doesn't even have to live in the same state or same country. I mean, Guyon lives in Norway, for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, and uh, it would not be more productive if he was sitting here next to me because then we'd be like el hitting each other's elbows. And, All right, well, and building virtual teams is, is the way forward because you don't have the infrastructure. You know, um, people can work on their own timelines. It's, I mean, it's just, it is the new way to start a bootstrap, isn't it, really? I think it's completely optimized. I think, and especially if, if you can cobble together some of these tools, these project management and, you know, you source control tools and uh, bug tracking tools and uh, you communicate. If you get together people who are, who are good at communicating, I think you're, you're probably in good shape. And people also who are, who are used to being sort of self-motivators. Yeah. They're not people who've worked for a corporation their whole life and are just feel like, oh, I got to work. Otherwise, my, my boss walks around and sees me not working. I'm going to get yelled at or something. You don't want people like that because, well, you have to be careful of people like that because they may or may not be able to, say, get themselves up in the morning or in the afternoon, wherever they work, and, and putting in a solid effort. They may just be really frustrated. But people who are freelancers or have worked a certain amount of time freelancing, if you get people who are self-motivated – um, are, are reasonably self-disciplined and are excited about the project. And uh, I, I think get, you don't have to have people sitting in the same room. I think that just makes things more complicated. It also makes it harder to find the right people because the right people may not live near you or want to drive to where you're located or, or whatever. I mean, Guyon lives in, uh, in Norway. There's no way he would ever move to Pasadena, California. Yeah, it's always going to be but, this split. So he's always going to be over there. You, you have a much bigger range. You have the whole world to pick the right person as opposed to the, to find the people who happen to live near you or want to work near you. And 
the people who, who are in startups, who want to do startups, generally are the kind of people who are self-motivated and self-disciplined, and they're the kind of people who you don't have to have sitting at a table to make sure that they're, they're in in the morning and working. And, and you say, well, well, I want them all near here so that we can uh, have meetings. Well, meetings kind of suck anyway. If you want to have a conversation with somebody, or you, then just talk to them and say, this is, this is what I'm thinking. And, I mean, you know, maybe it does a scale when you get past 10 or 15 people. Yeah, I because, just... I mean, the, the one thing is team building is – it's much easier to do a good job of it when people are in the same room as you. I mean, once again, I've, I've had a sort of corporate experience of sitting with a team and then the team moving onto another level, you know, onto another floor. And it's much harder to, to sort of motivate and manage a team if you're not actually next to them and working with them. So yeah, well, hopefully you don't have on the to other side of the you... world. Well, hopefully for the right people, you don't have to motivate. Like, I don't have to motivate Guyon. Yeah. <laughs> right? You get the right people, you don't have to motivate them. You don't have to... It's just they're adult, you know. You get the right people who are adults and they and they're involved because they want to be and they're good at what they do. You you don't have to do all this sort of babysitting. I guess and that I is true, kind of, yeah. Because because I'm talking about a corporate environment where people aren't really that invested in whether it gets built or not. They're just happy with the paycheck. Whereas what you're talking about is something kind of entrepreneurial. So as long as everyone's sort of in it to win it, then it, the motivation thing's less you know less of a point. Yeah, and if it's if it's a kind of thing that's working, where people are actually making some making a paycheck or 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 or, or making revenue from it, I mean, if they're co-founders, they're going to be they sh- they're most likely going to be motivated. And if they're just early employees, then the benefit is like, hey, you're working from home, you can do your own thing, work in your own way. So they have a lot to lose if it doesn't work out. And if it doesn't work out, it's not le- it's it's fairly easy to end it, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that when you're all sitting in a room and it becomes very sort of personal and there's all these politics that go on, I, I think he, it probably removes a lot of that, the politics as well. Hey, would you say that the hardest thing of any startup is to move from the first line of code to a thousand dollars in revenue? I think so. I think so. I, it's kind of reminds me of this, of a, of a, of a, of a um, thing, a friend of mine used to say, he's a trader and he'd say, you know, the hardest thing is just getting to where you can make any money consistently. It's, you know, if you get to the point where you're making $100 a day or $1,000 a day, that's way harder than going from making $1,000 a day to making $10,000 a day. You have to figure out something that works. Yeah. And most things don't work. So just getting some insight and some consistency is, that's the big challenge. And then you just try and figure out how to scale it and, and do it at a, 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 and improve it. And I think that exactly applies to what you're doing. You're trying to discover a function that turns time and energy into profit. <laughs> I think that is the reason why big, like good business, good successful business starts from a very simple, very small idea uh, from a niche that we, you know, from our own niche, because it's much easier to focus on that much smaller problem. And what, I've just started writing a blog post about this, basically, first line of code to $1,000 revenue in two months. And I, it made me realize that that really is the hardest part, because I've done so many startups in the past, and they haven't got anywhere near that. You know, in fact, they just have—they just haven't got anywhere. And I, I realized that the main difference between this idea and any other idea is that all of those other ideas came from me saying to myself, "What could I do to make a really good business to make money? Right? How, how could I think of a good startup?" And I think you did the same thing with Preso. So, for example, uh, well, I'm not even going to go into any of these examples, but they—they they were all big ideas. You know, big mm-hmm. ideas that required you know, significant amounts of development, whereas this is just such a, sm- a much smaller thing. And 
so much simpler to execute. That's what I'm saying about the 38, 38 days to, to the first, you know, sale. That is um, kind of weird. So, yeah, that would because be you're discovering a very anyone. simple function that you can understand. You know, you you can this this it's, it's it's not that complicated of a product in a way, and it's not something that you have to work on for months or years. And uh, and plus, there's a psychological boost you're getting to keep working on it. You 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 released something, people use it, people like it, they tell you positive things about it, and then people actually pay for it. And those are all very psychologically reinforcing um, things that make you want to reinvest in it, right? If you think about it, that that rule, first line of code to a thousand being the hardest thing, that is that is basically true of any business you think. I mean, if you think about it in terms of Google, Facebook, Twitter, like all of these guys, it, it was so much effort to move from the first line of code to the first thousand. Yeah, it's something like, how can I make, how can I make this work or anything work to that point? I... I think it's very. That's an interesting blog post. I think I think that'll be a good blog post. That'll probably take get a lot of hits on uh, Hacker News or whatever. Well, I've got to write it next. <laughs> yeah, now you got to write it. But it's a great it's a great topic, and I think you're absolutely right. It is the hardest thing, and that's why, in a sense, you want to um you want to do the minimal viable product, which is what you did effectively release something really early because it is so hard that you want to be able to try a lot of things. And there's other. I was like a blog post I saw a few times. I think are variations on this that were popping up on Hacker News a couple of weeks ago, which were that entrepreneurs learn from success, not failure. Apparently, they learn based on studies, learn very little from failure. <laughs> or That's, not that, just no, no, that, that can't be true. That well, actually, I, I can't. I don't think it was. I, I you know, I don't even remember if I read the article or if I just look at the headline or whatever. But and I, I don't think it had to do with entrepreneurship. I think it had to do with other things. But there's an there's like an infinite number of things that won't work and there's a very small finite number of things that will work okay really? so just because you tried something that won't work well there's still an infinite number of infinite minus one is still like infinite right well, because <laughs> whereas if you find one of these very finite things that work then you're like aha this works i can continue to make this do this well because you know my my approach over the i don't know 20 or so concept businesses that i've tried to launch and failed has been to try a different type of business each time. And it hasn't just included internet stuff, it's also included real world stuff. So for example, I'd say to myself, okay, you know, what would a business look like if I had a real product that was a like a perishable product? So then I, in England, I tried to start a hot chocolate business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then, you know, what would, what would a business look like if it was based around relationship matching? So then start a dating website. What would a business look like if it was based around a digital product? And you know, then try and write an ebook or something like that. And each time, each one of those businesses, I I sort of thought to myself, oh, I can really see why perishable products aren't very good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. So as you sort of go through the different businesses, each failure, from my perspective, as long as you don't do exactly the same thing each time, I think the failures are huge learning. But there's an infinite number of things that could fail. There's so many things that just don't work and there's a very small number of things that do work, I think. I think it's it's, it's not that you don't learn. I don't think you don't learn anything, but you don't learn much. Well, the value in, in a failure is – the learning experience in a failure is much less than the value in a success. Just like if but you a look failure at isn't path, a failure. I mean a, fa a failure has success. So as you try each of each of those things, you see the things that were successful and the things that were unsuccessful. Well, okay. You, so you, you replicate you, the yeah. successful parts – and your business gradually gets more and more made of successful components versus the failed components. 
Well, because but you're just guessing that those are the things that you did certain things, certain things right. If if the, ultimately the entire project failed, what was it fail? Was it a bad idea? Was it poor execution? Did you go after the wrong market? Did you pull in the wrong partner? I mean, whatever it was, right? And, and you're still just guessing because it could have failed for any reason. There's no there it, it, there's no. But if you make something work, at least you know that you, at least you have that that result that something worked. Um, and then, and then over you change an knob and it stops working, and you turn it back on, and starts, and, and, and it works again. You're like, oh, okay, you know. I don't know. I, I don't, the, I don't I know. But what about what they say? Who's who's the uh, the basketball player? Is it Michael Jordan? Who he basically he has the best record, but he's also got the most misses. That's true. Now, it doesn't mean that, okay. I'm not saying that there aren't things to learn in failure, and there aren't things to learn in trying. Those are important things. And that's why it's like you want the minimal viable product so you can make lots of attempts, so you can learn fast. I'm just saying that you learn a lot more from a success than you do from multiple failures. So like if you try 10 things and nine of them fail and the one of them succeeds, I'll bet you learn a lot more in that one success than you learn in the nine failures combined um, because you've kind of found the right recipe. Like, aha, okay, now I see what's going to work. Now I understand the function a little better. Now I know how to scale it, know how to tweak this and make it better. And that's why I think um, you know investors much prefer to invest in uh, entrepreneurs who have already succeeded and taken a company to IPO or sold it for a ton of money because they're like, okay, this person has figured out something that works. They they kind of know. Whereas if they take entrepreneurs like, well, this person's done it, you know, a startup once or twice and it's failed, so they have some understanding of the process, and so that's probably better than someone hasn't done anything. Although I think I've read something recently that said there isn't there isn't a whole statistical difference on the success prob uh, success rate of people who have zero experience versus people who've had failures. But if you had someone who succeeded, you probably increase your bet significantly. And I think that's what investors sense that. Somehow that whole logic doesn't sit very well with me. I can't I can't exactly um, argue against it, but somehow it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> well I would be much more I would be much if I was an investor and after Tweetminer, let's say that you can keep going with Tweetminer. Let's say you 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 figure out how to scale it and it does really well the next year or two, and you're like, hey, yeah, you know, I don't consult anymore. I, I, I more than support myself, and I have other employees at Tweetminer, and I have this other idea. I'd be much more, much more confident in saying, hey, Justin, I got some money. I'd like to, you know, partner up or invest in. Well, but that I, completely. That, I mean, because you figured something out. Obviously, but why? You but, but okay, let's put it this way: the only thing I've ever experienced before Tweetminer was failure. <laughs> okay, now I've got a success. I mean, did I learn with this one success or did I learn through failing all those other times? And then that's whittled me down to this one success. Well, I think you did <laughs> learn some things, but I think you, 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 you're able to hold on to and understand what really did work um, and what you didn't do in the past. I mean, part of what you didn't do in the past is you didn't so scratch your own itch. You didn't release something early and you didn't start charging. Right? Yes, yes. That, that, that is exactly what just, it was. Basically, I was more focused on the tech. I built it all out. And I just didn't have any business development involved in the business. So now the big, the big understanding for me, uh, age 40, is business development is a huge and very important part of actually turning software into real money. Yeah, otherwise it's just an open source <laughs> project. The funny thing project. is, you know, like a, I'm sure a 16-year-old uh, doing, doing some kind of business study course could have told me that. <laughs> but, you know, you just need to sort of live and learn, don't you? Well, you have it. to internalize I think it's like parents get frustrated because they, they've, le they've learned all these lessons and they tell their kid, look, don't do this, do that. And the kid's like, yeah, 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 whatever, right? And the kid has to kind of to some degree learn from their own mistakes and they come back and say, oh, I tried this and 
and then a parent can say, well, you know, I told you, but I'm glad you learned the lesson. <laughs> and that's probably yeah. very painful for parents. And I, and having three kids, I'm, I'm getting very, I'm preparing myself because I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of that <laughs> for right. the next 10 or 15 or 20 years of me telling them, you know, you probably don't want to do this. You probably don't want to do that. And they're going to do it anyway. And I have to watch them suffer through it because you just have to internalize. A- anyway, the, uh, the- I, I just saying I can't personally, I can't sit well with the concept that you learn more from success than failure. Just, I'll just find that article. Do a search. You'll find it. And I think there's actually some research that supports it, if I recall. But um, I don't know. I, I'd be, I, think it, I think it's true. It's not that you don't learn anything from failure. And it's always important to try and do stuff. But if you can get to success early, you know, even if it's a minor success, you just, I think you can just turn that into more success. And I think, I think also what's probably helped you like, you, like you were suggesting, is that the fact that we're doing this podcast and the fact that you and I talk about it and the fact that I kind of am like your subconscious or whatever. Hey, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to help you get your product out the door. Yeah, well, mine is getting out. <laughs> it will get out by the end of the year. But I mean, just in terms of you, right? I mean, it's sort of by having um, a, a second voice that is part of this world um, that can kind of reflect back or give you outside perspective on what you're what you're doing. Um, and all I'm doing, all I'm doing, is reiterating the same common sense um heuristics that everyone who reads hacker news has probably figured out at this point release yeah. early release offense scratch your own yet start charging you know go after a, a market that you care about solve a real problem you know whatever pretty simple yeah <laughs> you know and, but for some reason we all sort of stray from those things we want to we work on stuff for a year and a half we solve some problem that we're not really care about or that we don't really understand we never charge for it because we're afraid to charge for it and we have it in, in permanent could you have period. broken down your current thing that you're working on to a smaller prod, a smaller thing the size of Tweet Miner and released it. Um, by the way, the answer is yes. Eh, probably some, but you understand that I, 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 I changed the I, the idea evolved a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I was going to start with a, a side of it, but you remember I didn't really we didn't really start this until May and May May almost June. I mean, I, I'm thinking, and then I didn't really work on it much for uh, a number of time because I was working in local bacon quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and we're only working, we were only going five hours, five, six hours a week. A lot of weeks, which is five, six hours a week. It wasn't like I was cranking away on it every night and on the weekends. I mean, really not many hours. So I mean, there's, it's not like you can release something in 15 hours. You know I mean? You have to put a little bit of work into it. In fact, local bacon is a great example of release early. Yeah, no, we got that one. We got, got that up fast. And that was partially because, um, well, Joe really wanted to get it up quickly and he was like look want to get this thing up in like six weeks or whatever and so okay and then the fact that we shot for that TechCrunch 50 and then we got in then it was like okay well, we absolutely have to have all this stuff for the TechCrunch 50 and you know what do you think of, of this whole thing of like keeping up with competitors and focusing on the people who are who are competing with you and having to have the same level of features of them and making sure that your pricing is the same as, as them i think it's probably a mistake i think a lot of the successful ones, you, the successful companies that I, that I've read about, who've talked about this, said, "Look, they don't even pay attention to competitors. They really don't think much about it. You really don't want to get in a situation where you do the same thing. You just have different features, and you're all charging. You want to be different. You want to attack it at a different angle so that you're not really compared, or yeah. not compared very easily." Yeah. And and be, and I think there's been a lot of a lot of uh, some interesting points that have been made recently about. Um, Every time you add a feature, you really increase the complexity of your product. So you need to be very careful about adding features. And if you just start going around adding features because your competitor has a big checklist of features, 
I mean, you're just adding all this complexity and uh, all the support overhead and all documentation overhead and UI complexity because you added something. And I think you really just want to focus on what your your particular customer wants. I wonder if there's like an algorithm to say, okay, feature versus how much time and ease it brings to the customer. And therefore, that's how important it is to implement. Because customers will often ask for features. <clears throat> for, <clears throat> for example, one of the things that people wanted in TweetMiner was a way to check off things that they'd posted, right? And that's not really right. a time saver. That's just more of a like a sort of specific thing. Whereas if you compare that to a feature like an automated friend adder, you know, so that rather than them having to search for people and, and add them based on keywords, it does it in an automated way. That's a huge time saver. I wonder if there's some kind of algorithm to just sort of say, you know, you should do those features first. You should do the the features that really are the time savers that really do benefit users. You know, I, there was an article I read, which is really interesting. It was talking about sort of like how you create like a work queue of what you should work on. Mm. And I have the article and I, I, it was sort of an interesting way of like creating like a, a to-do list. Like let's say you have like a, a to-do list for a project, almost like bugs to fix. Yeah. Like a bug. And one of the things that – one of the – the core uh, points of it was that you multiply like the amount of pain that it causes the greatest number of users. <laughs> you kind of multiply those and that's yeah. the highest, right? And you knock those things out first. So if it's a lot of pain, but it's only like, you know, 0.1% of the users, it's like, well, you know, that guy's going to have to suffer for a while yeah. where there's some pain versus almost everybody sees it. And you just go after and you remove those. So it's, it's, it's just sort of that area of pain, which is how much well, pain. And but that's not so much benefit, is it? I mean, that's well, more, it's the that's same about, thing. It's like how it, much benefit to how many people? If like right. five percent of your people will benefit a ton, that may not be nearly as important. If like everyone will better benefit some, the the aggregate amount of overall joy <laughs> that'll be created by the product, by the feature, the new feature. Okay, so what do you think is more important on TweetMiner, multi multiple panels, or automated friend adding? I have no idea because I'm not a user and, uh, you know, I don't use Twitter or TweetMiner because I'm not a Twitter tweeter, <laughs> which, which is unfortunate. I need to, I need to play around the product because I, it, it's no point even bloody talking to you about it. You haven't even well, used no, it. I just, Thanks, well, even Jason. If I did use, well, even if I did use it, it would, it would, <laughs> I would be a, a sample of one. They really want to talk to your user base. Yeah, I guess. Well, I, I do I'm, talk to them and they basically, they've got approximately the same level of, you know, about 18 to 19 people voted for each. Well, then I guess it's just flip a coin, whichever you want to do. Then I guess, then I guess maybe it's like, okay, if it's the same percentage of people care about it in the same amount, then they're equal on that. And the next, the next thing you might look at is like, well, one will take you four hours and it'll take you four, and the other one will take you four days. Yeah. So maybe you go after the one that takes four hours. Or, and the other thing is, um, the amount of complexity will add to your product. They're both big chunks of work, so... <laughs> so they're both big projects. They're both equivalent in, in effort. And then what about how much um, complexity overhead they add to the product itself? But what I do think is that the automated friend adding means is more beneficial for people's businesses. I think so. Well, I would have thought that it's better for better for people to have more followers than it is to have multiple panels. Well, but you know, there's a lot of things that you thought were true and turned out to be true, but you just don't know at this point. So maybe you just do. I just do one. You yeah. know, just does probably doesn't matter. Just do one of them and then do the other one. Well, here's, I mean, okay, here's another way to look at it. Well, here's another way okay. to look at it. Like the automatic automatic friend adding is definitely an upgrade feature that only page users can get. 
Whereas multi okay. multi panels is something that's for everyone. Really? Why not? Why does that have to be for everyone? Because it's just an interface thing. I mean, it would be weird to oh. switch off parts of the basic interface unless you paid. I don't know. That sounds like a power user feature to me. Well, well I guess not. I mean, look, here's the thing. Maybe that doesn't matter because there's only so many automated tweets and stuff that people can send. And so if they have multiple streams, multiple things, they're ultimately probably going to need to send more, more tweets anyway. So the reality is that people who use the multi-screens are probably going to be power users anyway. Well, the, the automated friend adding isn't sending out any tweets or anything like that. It just basically looks for people and sort of hooks you up with them. It looks for people based on keywords. So, you know, you're interested in um, C++, so you type in C++, and it just searches for people who mention C++, and then it automatically follows them, so you get to connect with those people. Right. Right. Well, you know one thing I want to, uh, uh, before I forget, I almost forgot, uh, forgot to mention this, but the, you know, we talk about, like, hey, okay, so you have these two features that you can implement, and right. there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, uh, there's, there's uncertainty about which one you should implement. It's really hard to say at this point. Yeah. And I, I'd read this book about um, entrepreneurship, and it was a study. It was done by like, like four business school professors at like Harvard and University of Chicago, and they did they studied like a thousand startups or something like that. And um, I'm trying to find, if I can find the book, but the, the the end result of it is they talk about like, well, what makes an entrepreneur is it because they have more tolerance for risk, or are they um, more independent, or what 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 is it that? And the, the only really consistent um, attribute that could be ascribed to um, all of these these entrepreneurs was their ability to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. That, for most people, when there's just uncertainty, they just don't move forward. They just completely break down. Like, I, I don't know. I can't do anything. I, I don't know what to do. Hmm. Whereas if you're a, an entrepreneur, it's, it's like, okay, well, I could go A or B. I did my best to figure out which one was a better one. There's still uncertainty, so just pick one. Do it. Move on. <laughs> Right. Interesting. Yeah. And and that's essentially what you're going to have to do here. I mean, you're doing your best to come up with some kind of objective criteria to determine what the best solution is. But at some point, in some instances, you just aren't going to be able to know. And so you just have to just pick whichever one you feel like doing. Well, the auto friend adding kind of relies on the other problem, which I opened up the podcast with, which is a big problem. Um, they're both really big problems because then you then the multiple the multiple panel thing is that's a big problem as well because it's really complex front end stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, Do they are which one? Which one will, will either of them lead into other sets of cool features? Are they related to other things that you want to do. I guess I guess the like, multi panel the multi panel will basically make people think that the that the Twitter client is then on the same par as TweetDeck and Seismic and uh, Hootsuite. Right, because, because at the it, moment, as a Twitter client, visual, it isn't. Because a visual, when you have this whole new visual interface, it really seems like a a, a bigger deal. Well, it's because you you can basically see multiple Twitter streams at the same time. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I don't know, man. I think in the end, maybe maybe just do whatever you feel like doing. <laughs> Which one do you feel <laughs> well, like I, doing? Your gut will probably your gut probably knows the answer. So if you sit down and said, "All right, I'm going to do." Well, it's funny because I'm in a recursive loop about it because I think, "Oh." I'll do the friend adding one, and then I go, oh, no, but then I've got to sort out the whole pulling in the follower list. And then I think, oh, okay, I'll do the front-end stuff, and then I go, oh, no, but I've got to sort out resizing of the columns and all the weird front-end stuff and, like, uh, asynchronous, asynchronously calling five different five different streams at the same time. 
<laughs> so. Yeah, yeah you, you know, it's, it's interesting because I had a couple of things I wanted to – I wrote down, made notes in the last few days about things, topics I want to talk about. And yeah, one sure. of them was this in particular, which is that when you get – I was kind of come up with like a way to describe it, but it's sort of like being trapped in a development gully. Whereas like you just – you get stuck. You're like I can't figure out what to do next. And that usually happens with me when a couple things are true. It's like I can't figure out what I want to work on next, and I can't figure out how to solve at least one or two of the problems of things that I'm not sure whether I should work on them or not. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. There's a couple different levels. Like, and not only do I not want to know which I should do next, I'm not sure how, how I want to or how to do them. And so you just kind of get stuck. And it's like when you're in an organization where – People just tell you this is what I want you to do, and you figure out how to do it. It's probably easier to go forward because it's like, well, I just have to figure out how to solve this problem. I don't, I don't get a choice of what I get to work on. I have to solve this. Whereas for entrepreneurs, like you're like, I don't know which one I want to work on, and then okay, if I, it's a multiple panel or this, and you're like, you know do what I, I do? do it? You know what I've been doing? What I've been doing is I've been picking off smaller requests that are less important, stuff that I can do in maybe four hours or a day. So I just keep on going through the forums and seeing what what the feedback is and pick off those smaller ones and i've been putting off these big ones well that's a that's that's a couple things that's exactly what i did that's exactly what i made a list of all the things that i probably so when i got in that i got in that kind of loop that you did the other night and i'm just sitting there and i'm not making any progress and every time i start thinking about one i started thinking about the other problem and i started thinking about that problem and i started thinking about another problem and then i just didn't make any progress and so i said all right, all right let me just write down everything and then i found a handful of things that were really easy and that were kind of like required for these other bigger things so just like you said, pick off the easy ones. And it also comes back to something we talked a few episodes back, which is structured procrastination, which is the idea when you get – when you start procrastinating about something you want to do, do these other things lower you, you, on your list that you want to do, which is exactly what you're doing. Because you're making progress. At least you're moving forward. You're moving forward. You're creating product momentum. You're creating psychological you're, – you're creating a psychological bonus for yourself because you got stuff done. And meanwhile, your back of your brain is probably building up the sort of momentum or ability to tackle these other problems while you're making, knocking out these other little things. Because the worst thing you could do is just stay in the state of nothingness for like the next three weeks. <laughs> well, you could just turn to marketing. <laughs> okay, I'll just market it. I'm yeah. not going to build it. I mean, that's it. fine too. You can turn to other things. But I mean, if you just didn't do anything, you said, right, why do I write code? Yeah. I can't move forward. I can't do anything else until I solve these problems, but I can't decide what to do. So I'm just going to sit here. Just go and watch TV. Yeah, and then you don't do crap, and that's the worst thing to do. But so knock out easy things. And I remember a friend of mine in college who um, he wanted to be a writer, and so he he started writing. He, he wanted to write this short story, and he spent weeks on the first paragraph. And it was like this James Joycean kind of like fifteen levels of of depth to every sentence. And he it was called the the title was called the puddle. <laughs> <laughs> He was really. I remember we would go. We Did you ever finish uh, it? I remember how we talk about it. He's like, I'm like, so how's the puddle coming? He's like, ah, I'm still in the first paragraph. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, like, dude, just right. Just quit agonizing over it and get a move forward. And I don't think he, he never got past the first paragraph. Never. Well, that that's common. A lot of people, a lot of people do. And, you know, he was – I remember t giving this advice years and years ago, like 10, 12 years ago. He was, he was living in um, tai, Taiwan, and he was back here visiting, and he was writing a story, and he was telling it was one of these kind of um, like uh, pulp fiction where you have like multiple stories going on, and they all intertwine at some later point, all these characters. Yeah. And I, and I knew from software development that – my experience in software development, that the complexity, managing complexity of something like it, especially his first 
book, first novel he's trying to write, which is too much. I'm like, why don't you write a short story, two, five, ten pages about each one of these characters? Just, you know, get to understand the characters, get something done. And then later yeah. maybe you can start to intertwine them. But he didn't want to do that. He thought that was – he wanted to write the whole thing. And, of course, he never got it read. Too big. Just it's Because it, everything gets done in small steps Yeah. anyway. As we always talk about, the only way <laughs> – make any progress is doing small steps. The only way that you can manage any kind of complexity is break, breaking things down into smaller steps, modularizing things. So, yeah, for you, you know, and then I think just, you know, whatever, pick one. But if you still can't decide, just knock out other little crap, <laughs> little things, little wins you can feel good about. And that's actually what I'm going to do today. I'm going to knock out a handful of um, smaller things before I get to the bigger things. Because, you know, what happened is I spent so much time you know, moving this stuff over to merging, moving it over from a shared account to a virtual private server and getting the screwing around with the DNS and the subdomain wildcarding and the database crap that I haven't written any code. So now I feel a little like intimidated by the code. Yeah, that happens when you don't look at it for a while and then you get back into it. Yeah. So the only way so the, to, I've discovered for myself, the best way for me to get back into it is, is, is come up with a list of small things and just not knock out the small things. They're eating around the edges. Until until you build up confidence to go after the core stuff again, because it takes a while to load everything up into your brain again. It's like you shut off the computer and now you got loaded all up in RAM again, and that, that process sometimes can take hours, if not days, of getting it all back in your brain. Hey, we've been going for a, a while now, I think, on this show. Yeah, I think it's probably a good time to call it. I need to uh, I need to head out anyway. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. We're out.